are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. And it is the last day in August. And I am so excited. I, ha I am just so happy today. I have, as my cinematic co-pilot, an old dear friend, Byron Bean, talent manager, fellow producer. You're too kind. I am so thrilled. People that, people that know us that are going to listen to the show, and we hope there's many of them out there yes. that will, because we've been hounding all of them about mm -hmm. about us doing this. You know, if you if you're a regular listener, Byron called in a few weeks ago for his one of his latest projects. He's a producer on Live in the Dream. Yes, which we just talked about again last week with our uh, LAFF future filmmaker Sarah Evans, who was going to go check it out immediately. But Mr. By Coastal here is on this <laughs> coast and said. I want to come on. I want to co-pilot the show. So I'm just so excited. Oh, my God. I am excited. It's such a, I said this earlier, it's such a full circle moment, and I love it. I think it's great. Oh, I mean, and it's, you know, and we both were doing exactly what we want to do. Yes, it's true. And it, I'm able to do it out here on the West Coast and the East Coast, so it's kind of nice to have that luxury, Yeah. especially in the summertime. Well, not with the heat wave we've been having. Uh, that's true. New York would have been cooler. <laughs> That humidity in New York is ridiculous. I don't know about that. I'll take the dry heat anytime. But we've had a lot of humidity lately, too. Really? Yes. I didn't think, I thought LA was void of humidity. Not anymore. Global warming. Oh, great. Global that warming. Thing. That thing. That thing. But in all of our glee and excitement today, we have we have a really, a very eclectic and interesting show today, mm -hmm. I think, and a very timely one. On many fronts, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, our first guest at eleven fifteen today is a new young director, Caitlin Smith, who has put together a documentary, uh, time to the tenth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, that it is one of the most powerful pieces of filmmaking that you will see. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. I really enjoyed it. Um, and thanks to her father, who spent twenty six years in, or even a little more. In the U.S. Coast Guard, she was given access to many things that other filmmakers and lay people definitely would not be privy to, and to hear testimonials and the memories, and to learn about the immediacy with which the Coast Guard responded in a disaster, even before anybody else, as Byron pointed out earlier when we were talking, because they weren't waiting for orders, they just went and did. Yeah. And it was incredible to watch. And you'll hear, and within the documentary, you hear that the Coast Guard ended up saving 33,500 lives in Katrina. That's amazing. So we're going to get to talk to Caitlin and about this whole filmmaking experience for her as a first-time filmmaker. It's great. And at 1130, we've got another full-circle moment yes. coming on here. We're going to have writer-director Maura Stevens joining us to talk about her latest feature endeavor, Zipper, filled with a political sex scandal starring Patrick uh -oh. Wilson. A nice turn in there by Richard Dreyfus, And, of course, Mora just either last night did a Q&A moderated by Kim Spurlock, the writer-director of Living, Living the, Dream. the Dream. Yeah. So it was either last night or tonight, and we'll get clarification on that from Mora. <laughs> so we're just, we're just bringing it all around Weaving it all here. together. I know. It's great. So, well, besides living the dream, what other projects are you working on? Because, and of course, and one of your clients, Aaron, mm -hmm. is in 
Live in the Dream. Yeah, Aaron's in Live in the Dream. Um, uh, that project in particular was one of um, the few that we could go ahead and pull the trigger on and, and make because it was such a uh, a ripe project in the moment, um, which was great. And we got that done in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, it was shot, I believe, over six days. And that, just, that just amazes me. Yeah, and the the production quality, the actors, everything about it just sort of flowed, which was mm -hmm. amazing. Um, projects coming up, I have a couple of screenplays that from clients that I'm looking at and a pilot too, a television pilot from uh, a client of mine, and uh, we'll see what comes out of it. I mean, it's it's exciting. The indie world to me has been is an exciting time right now, and I'm. Yeah. Uh, hoping to get more into that world with some of these super talented people, writers and directors. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of them out there. And actually, first up today, we're going to talk about a little, uh, a true indie film that uh, hit theaters on a limited basis this week that I hope expands called Unsullied. Yes. Um, writer, director, Simeon Rice. Yes. Duh. Yes. You should know the name, people. <laughs> Super Bowl champion, NFL, Tampa Bay Buccaneer, yeah. Simeon Rice has his next step in life. His next chapter is making is as a filmmaker. Can he get Super Bowl ring and potential Oscar at some point? At some point that could happen. Yeah. But what was really interesting, I sat down with Simeon um, at the end of July in a one-on-one -on -one to talk about Unsullied and about his transition. And the first thing that struck me is he's really trying to distance himself and his level of, of humility mm. is it's endearing. No Super Bowl ring. Most guys with Super Bowl rings, and I know a lot of attorneys that have been that are referees or have been referees part time. Really, they are never Howard Slavin being one of them, and because he refed a Super Bowl game, mm -hmm. even the refs get a Super Bowl ring. That man was never without his Super Bowl ring. Other players I have known, championship players, never without their rings. Simeon, very low key, no ring. Wow. And as we know, he also loves to eat peanut M&M. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I now know that. <laughs> yes, yes. But one of the most genuine men who really wanted, he didn't just want to step in in a titular capacity to make a film. Mm. He really wanted to learn how to make a film. And for the second chapter in his life, when he walked away from football, he went back to school, to film school. Incredible. And that speaks volumes about the man. And his frustration with when he wanted to learn filmmaking and he would say, here, shadow Brett Ratner, here, go see Bruce Willis. He said, and everybody just wants to glad, ha glad hand and say, look, it's Simeon Rice. He's got a Super Bowl ring. Right. Simeon Rice. And that's not what this is about for him. So he's now put together this an incredible film and uh as as i mentioned to you uh, as we were driving over my review is out uh in print right now it'll be online uh, later today in various places but watching the film it's all about a woman who has been taken hostage uh, in a very small you know swampland everglades community in florida which could easily be transported just about anywhere into a small backwoods and you're from North Carolina, so yep. you know some of these areas. Yeah, well. Mm -hmm. And 
it's all about she's an athlete she's in the prime of her life as a track star and it's her using her wits to try and escape these men that have taken her hostage and then are pursuing her it's intense it's very intense and then there's some great backstory in there that explains we learn her history and history about a sister that went missing and everything comes together eventually as the film plays out but Murray Gray her first role she's got a theater background but it's her first film role Murray is amazing as the uh, as the protagonist Reagan and uh, she really embraces the physicality but as she's running and Simeon did a lot of the the action choreography himself it is this is truly his discerning eye his perspective you can see him moving across the gridiron with wow. the, with the action yeah. and the intensity and it's it, the attention to detail is so amazing and i really really can't praise him enough for the effort and you know that he put in but first we are going to hear as soon as we get brian's attention brian and jordan are Hi, in brian. there just they're having too much fun back there <laughs> they're having too much fun back there today I'm going to drag in some uh, production notes on air. Do you want me to play uh, Simeon Rice or end of the wor- end of the tour? We are going th- we are going to do Simeon Rice clip 1 because I want everybody to get a sense about Simeon's filmmaking background and hear about his first foray where he invested in a film which is what helped turn him turn the tide for him to become a filmmaker the right way. I'm so curious about this. You're going to love it. Yeah. I, I, I gave money to a film, okay? I lost money on it. Been there, done that. Okay. And, and this guy, he comes over to my house. He's like, he's a filmmaker. He's in Tampa. He's from L.A., this and that. And he's like, you know, I'm doing this movie. And he pitched me. And I'm like, all right. I give you the money, but I want to learn filmmaking. He's like, all right. I'm going to put you in a movie, too. I was like, I don't really want to be in a movie. I just want to learn on set. He's like, but we need... So he put myself, Mike Allstadt, a bunch of players, baseball players, various guys. Even uh, Jim Kelly was in this film. It was a kid's movie. And then when we were shooting it, I was just, I'll never forget, we were shooting this, this film. And film sets could be boring. But I remember falling asleep doing, like, while they were doing scenes. And I was like, this is so boring. I, like, I was like, I wouldn't, I, I totally removed myself from a, from a, as a, f- a fan of movies. And, mm-hmm. and I've been watching, that's what I've done my whole life. Mm-hmm. But I totally removed myself and got into the process of it. Like, oh, I guess it's filmmaking. But I was like, this scene seems so boring. That's because it was. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just didn't know it. I was just like, eh, I wouldn't watch this, but I guess it's going to be good after it comes in the wash. And yes, you could do certain things with editing. And, but I'm like, the story sounds boring. Like, I wouldn't... But anyway, so it came out. We go to the, we have the, the screening for it. Everybody's in Tampa. One of the former uh, basketball player's house, and his house is huge, literally huge. Like, no, how many thousand, thirty thousand square feet of mm-hmm. home, big, huge, look like an auditorium, uh, mm-hmm. theater. Everybody's there. Every seats filled. It had to be like I don't know, like 150 seats, and it looked like a, it was the shit. And i never forget, I walked out the theater. And he was like, Simeon, you can't walk out. You want to executive producer. I'm like, man, this I lost my money in this movie, man. I was like, just make sure I'm, I'm going to get my money. And I left. 
And he's like, because I could tell it was bad lighting. I was like, I won't watch this. I was, oh my I, and that's when it all hit me. I was like, I just lost my money. You know what I mean? Not until I seen it. I was like, you're not going to get anybody distribute this movie. It's too, it looks bad. Like, how don't you know that all those people you flew in from Canada and Toronto, you don't know that? That's all in the story. I'm getting too much in it. So I was like, I was like, I didn't learn anything. I didn't learn anything. Well, one thing that Simeon definitely did learn was how not to make a bad movie. Right, again. exactly. After that experience. But he's, as you can tell, he is very candid. He is very open about it. <laughs> and you hear his passion and his frustration. That was the thing when you, as you were talking about him, is his passion. Like, I'm so curious what this switch was like for him and what sparked inside of him to go from Super Bowl champion to filmmaker and how this story comes out of you. It's not easy, especially, you know. As a filmmaker, it's not easy to find these stories inside of you to work on. And that's, I mean, the passion in here is obviously you, very real. And you hear this yeah. in his yeah. voice. Yep. But, and I know we have our first, we have Caitlin Smith, director Caitlin, on the line. But before we cut to Caitlin, um, I want, I, you know, we're on a roll with Simeon here yeah. for, for, for a second. And, you know, because part of this passion, it comes, and as I mentioned, it comes through in the visuals. Yeah. And a lot of that is due to working with Scott Winnig, his uh, cinematographer, mm -hmm. uh, and the design that they came up with and how collaborative it was. And it's something that Simeon was very proud of, working with Scott and designing the intensity of these visuals. And here's what he had to say about his cinematography. I, when we met with Scott, when I met with Scott, I said, listen, man, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generational. Mm -hmm. I'm from the new video game era kids and stuff like that. I said, I've seen these done, but I, I, I think it's done too much when they do it. Mm -hmm. When I seen like, what's that movie? Uh, it's a film where I'm sure you probably know it. This is this kid. He has this power. It's all in first shooter like standpoint. You know, they can't uh, Jordan. Be whatever his name is, new Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, Michael B. Jordan. Michael yeah. B. Jordan. He was in that film too. It, it was just like they they acquired this power, but it was all shot in that narrative and that. Yeah. Film. I was like that was done too much. I was like I love that, but it's too much. Mm -hmm. I love it in terms of building story. I don't like it in terms of story and narration mm -hmm. because it's too in your face. I like it where it, you feel. I want people to feel like they're in this movie. I was like, I want them to run with her. I want to be afraid. I want her, I want her point of view, but I still want to use traditional shots. Mm -hmm. And Scott was like, oh, Simeon, I don't know. This is just too, it's like too out there. He loved it as a concept, but he was like, this is too out there. I was like, trust me, it's going to work. Trust me. I was like, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm like, trust me. I, see, I could see it. I see And then we would do it, and then we cut it down to a daily, and he was like, He's like, he's like, hey, he's from New Yorker too. He's like, uh, because he, like, he no problem telling you he don't like something. Yeah. He'd be like, uh, he's working like the, he hate the, the GoPro cameras and all mm -hmm. that. He hate those shots, but then when I do it, and he like, it worked. He's like, yeah, it worked. Yeah, I can live with it. And even when we get put together, he's like, wow. He's like, you really have a real discerning eye. And we worked well together, you know what I mean? We really worked well together. Well, I know, and I was talking to Murray already, and I love the fact that you actually were shooting night for night on many mm -hmm. of the occasions. Right. You weren't doing a, a whole film of day for night shots. Uh-uh, yeah, we went for it. Right. You can always, there's always a difference. You can always tell. But what right. you also did 
in in post with your saturation, your color and your saturation. Oh, you saw that. You you intensified it. You brought up the saturation point so that it becomes surreal. We've got that heightened adrenaline rush that Reagan is right. feeling. But then when she has her flashbacks to her her father and her sister, right. it's in a whole nother feel. Dial it back. Right. You've got a more gold. The lighting, Scott's right. lighting, it's more golden, right. softer, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I want to juxtapose that because these are different times and a different feeling, a warmer feeling. And um, I wanted I wanted that natural blend to take you one out of one environment to a whole nother environment mm -hmm. where you can understand that where the environment becomes a character, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it sustains what she's going through and it sustains what you feel, mm -hmm. you know, so those little narratives, I, f I just felt like helped build the story. And we'll be back to more of Simeon later in the show. But right now, we have another story builder here and storyteller in the wonderful Caitlin Smith. Hello, Caitlin. Hello, Debbie. How are you? Fine. Hi, well, Caitlin. And Byron Hi. is here with me. And uh, Byron has seen uh, Paratus 1450 as well as I have. I did. And it was mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. This, amazing, I think, is an understatement with what you have done here. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. The, you should be so proud of telling this story. And surprisingly, Byron and I were, were mentioning this earlier, nobody has done any kind of retrospective even similar to this about those first days after Katrina, mm -hmm. let alone from the Coast Guard standpoint. And, you know, the statistics alone are just mind boggling. Uh, Americans don't know how much they really owe the, the Coast Guard with, right. with the work. Right. They yeah. And this is the uh, first time they've had their story told fr um, completely from this perspective. And it's definitely one of a kind. There's no documentary like this out there about the Coast Guard, and I think that's really that's what separates it apart from everything else. What was it that made you, what little voice or what light bulb went off in your head that said, Caitlin, you have to tell this story? Well, what the inspiration behind the documentary actually came from my father. My father served 27 years in the U.S. Coast Guard, and he just retired this year. And nine years ago, um, I was on a trip with him in New Orleans. We are actually from New Orleans as well. And it, it really, it just clicked in my head, why are we not telling the story of the U.S. Coast Guard and what they did here? And they saved 33,000 lives. And their story needs to be told. They, they were the first ones in and the last ones out. So how did you go about, you know, uh, formulating the concept and the narrative that you came up with and then right, yeah. and the logistics. Yeah, so it's, I've been, it's been a year and eight months process, but really it's been a nine-year process for me. I've done research on this for seven years, and in January 2014, I had an opportunity to take an independent study at the University of Alabama, and I decided, oh, I was going to make this five-minute documentary, but instead it turned into an hour and 27 minutes. Mm -hmm. And what I had to do in order to interview Coast Guard officers and air crewmen, I had to go through the Coast Guard Hollywood Liaison Office. And so I signed a contract with them in March of 2014 that allowed me to interview all these officers and air crewmen. It allowed me B-roll footage from Hurricane Katrina. 
and I knew right away how I wanted the documentary to go. I wanted to set the foundation in the beginning of what happened in both New Orleans and on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi, and then I wanted to present all their challenges, and not just the physical challenges, the internal challenges, which people have held, held back and not spoken about for 10 years. And you highlighted that so well in these interviews with Thank some of the you. rescue swimmers that was so emotional and the ethos that was invoked in this documentary was just brilliant and that was the mm -hmm. one thing that stuck out to me the most now how did you decide because in in listening to the documentary yes there were 180 people originally in the new orleans in i'm the, sorry can you repeat the question in initially there were what 180 people coast guard uh, men and women in the New Orleans area, with Katrina, at one point it got up to 600 people from mechanics to pilots to rescue swimmers. How mm -hmm. did you narrow down the list of who you would interview? Right. So choosing my interviewees was actually the easiest part, and everyone looks at me like I'm crazy when I say that. I knew the challenges that I wanted to talk about, like acting through rooftops, flying at night, um, going down in chemical-filled water, so I already knew the challenges, and what I did, and like I said, I spent seven years researching this. I picked the air crewmen that I knew had the most significant rescues during those challenges. Um, like, for instance, uh, our rescue swimmer, Joel Sayers, that is him acting through the rooftop in that video, and he was the first person to ever act through a rooftop during the rescue. And so I wanted everyone who faced those challenges to tell their story um, like Commander Chris Chase, when he's flying at night, he told his night story. So I knew I, would, I wanted to tell every challenge, and I needed those air crewmen to tell us about their personal account facing those. And I also knew that I wanted to tell it from the perspective of all four air crewmen, both the pilot, the flight mechanic, and the rescue swimmer. Mm -hmm. um, I, because then your story wouldn't be told accurately if you're just telling it from the rescue swimmer standpoint yeah. I know we have gotten some feedback like what about the boat crews the thing is though that the Coast Guard's response to Hurricane Katrina was so big that you couldn't tell it all in one documentary so I focused in on aviation because I have a passion for aviation but if you notice at the end I did capture the whole spirit and culture of the Coast Guard with Joel Sayers line when he says this would have never been possible if it wasn't for every asset within the United States Coast Guard, mm -hmm. from public affairs people, from the boat crews, from the surface fleet, from the people in the galley making the food. So hopefully people understand that this 33,000 lives were saved as a total of the whole U.S. Coast Guard. Incredible. Well, and, and that's something that I think is very important for people to understand, and I think you really bring that forth very clearly is the fact that they didn't hesitate. They didn't wait for orders. FEMA wasn't even on the ground, but the Coast Guard was there. Mm -hmm. And that was the difference between life and death for all of these people. I mean, was, you know, was there, what kind of perspective? I noticed you didn't interview your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, was there a reason you didn't talk to your dad about it, or did he give you any kind of any kind of behind-the-scenes guidance, or did you bounce anything off of him? 
Like, so, I mean, like I said, my dad did serve 27 years in the Coast Guard. He absolutely did not want to be interviewed, and I actually <laughs> didn't tell him about the project until I was, like, past the point of signing contracts with the Coast Guard and everything. Um, and I will say my dad didn't see the documentary until this past Friday because it's very emotional for him. Mm -hmm. um, and he's actually served during the Katrina response as well. I had the honor of attending a barbecue this Friday with the, the personnel that served in New Orleans at the time. Wow. I mean, there were tissue boxes everywhere. Everyone yeah. was in tears. And it's just to know that your film has impacted these men and women that way is a feeling that I can't even describe in words. Um, you know, and it's, it's something that, like they said firsthand, these people never talked about what they went through. A lot of them uh, suffered PTSD. Some of them quit the Coast Guard afterwards, and uh, wow. some of them divorced their wives. And it's just very emotional what they went through. And But it also, with my documentary, like I've heard, shows that they're human beings and um, that even though it sheds light on our first responders because what we do a lot of the times is we talk about the survivors or the victims, but we also need to pay attention that first responders go through that same pain. And I hope people will get that from this. Were there any any uh, Coast Guard members you wanted to interview that, like your dad, didn't want to be interviewed? That it was still too painful? Did some not want? Did, did some not want to go on camera, Caitlin? Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still oh. here. I'm sorry. I'm actually on the road to Los Angeles right now. I'm oh my god. <laughs> oh my. No, I just wonder. Are there any that did not want to be interviewed on camera? Um, you know, I will say there are 5,600 Hurricane Katrina stories out there from the Coast Guard. I wish I could tell them all. Mm -hmm. And the interviewees that we interviewed, they all wanted to tell their stories um, for the Coast Guard as a whole. Mm -hmm. I will say. I think every one of our interviewees but four just absolutely broke down on camera. And wow. I was respectful in a sense that, hey, would you like me to turn off the camera? Would you, do you need a glass of water? And, there's, and they looked at me and said, no, because people need to know this. Mm -hmm. People need to know that we have been suffering from ten, for 10 years. And, and that's when I knew the real story of Katrina. I, I had a, last summer when we started filming, I had the script. I knew what I was going to do. But then it completely changed when I found out what was happening during these interviews. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know this myself. Mm -hmm. And so it's really no one opposed to being interviewed. Um, it's, it's, it's really they all wanted to have a voice for the Coast Guard as a whole, as I noticed. Now, what kind of uh, you traveled to multiple Coast Guard facilities uh, to film this documentary, did you not? Mm hmm. What was what kind of logistical challenges did you face? How big was your crew? Were you bringing a crew? Were you shooting everything yourself and you know and doing the interviews and narration? How did the logistics work for you filming? Well, first start off saying that when you sign a contract with the Coast Guard, you're allowed to have B-roll footage um, in your film, and they can give it to you, and you can set up times to film at their air stations, and that's what we did, but. We went through hundreds of hours worth of footage. I did, luckily, I had a great crew. I took some of my own friends from Alabama to help me, um, uh, co-workers that I used to work with 
and Alabama, and um, we kind of just built this team, and we all went through it together. And we found what we found was the most emotional clips. Like there are some great shots of helicopters. It's like, oh, we want to put that in there. But then you see these children being hoisted up into the helicopter, and then someone says that's going to impact people even more. Mm-hmm. And people should know about my crew. We were all students when we were doing this. I mean, most of us have graduated now. But these are 22, 20, 21-year-olds, 19-year-olds making this film about this service. And um, the way we related, the way we were able to get through it ourselves, because my crew was affected emotionally when doing this, the way we got through it is that we looked at it as, hey, these rescuers in the Coast Guard were 20, 21, 22 themselves when they did this rescue. Mm-hmm. So that's how we related. We stood in their shoes. And I think my crew and I did a very good job putting it together. Um, I did. I kind of played a role in, a, like, a lot of stuff. And that's what you do in most independent documentaries. Mm-hmm. I will say I had a lot of help, and I'm very thankful for that. Now, was Casey and E.T. always involved in this? Or when did they get involved as a portal for distribution? Did you know, did you know originally that Casey E.T. would be picking this up and showing it? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Oh, no, that's okay, because I know you're driving, which you shouldn't be doing and talking on the phone at the same time. Um, there's my, there's... my dad's actually driving, so I'm doing the safe thing. <laughs> oh, okay, good. So your dad doesn't have to slap you silly or anything. No. no. Did you always know that KCET, when did they get involved in terms of distributing the documentary? When did my crew get involved? When did KCET get involved? For actually oh, okay. Distributing KCT it. got involved actually in July. Yes, after we released the trailer, we actually got so many emails, so many messages come in, and I got a message from KCET and was like, "We want to air this," and I said, "Okay." I didn't actually know a lot about it, and then I looked it up and I said, "Absolutely." That did mm-hmm. the coverage on the West Coast and an area that's heavily filled with military presence out in Los Angeles, and that's when actually Link TV got in touch with us. And we were fortunate enough that Link TV put Paradis on the national stage. And so um, Link TV actually broadcasted it on August 29th for the 10th anniversary. And that was my goal from the very beginning. And I watched it in Mississippi on August 29th, and I can tell you I was in tears. Well, I can tell you I watched it on August 29th here in Los Angeles, and you had me in tears. I mean, because Mm -hmm. I watched the rescue from beginning to end. Uh, when Katrina hit, I was actually in, I went to New Orleans to do animal rescue uh-huh. as soon as they would let people come in to help. So, I mean, I was actually boots on the ground and saw a lot of it, but not in the immediate sense the Coast Guard did. And to mm-hmm. see this, it is, it, it is just, you cannot help but be moved by what you've put together, Caitlin. Anybody that is not touched and moved and does not appreciate the Coast Guard after seeing this documentary does not deserve to be an American. No soul. <laughs> no soul. <laughs> so now, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making this documentary, in making Paratus? You know, this, I will say, Making this film had its positives and its negatives, and it brought challenges, but what, this was a learning experience. 
um, with any project that you take on in the, any industry, you're going to run into bumps in the road, but you're going to also find a way to break through those bumps in the road and problem solve. And I, I noticed that nothing can ever bring me down as a filmmaker and nothing can ever get in my way as a filmmaker if I believe and I have passion and I put my heart and my mind to it. Because if you, if you would have told me a year and eight months ago where I'd be right now, I probably would laugh. Like, hmm. what has happened is has been incredible. Um, it's something that's never been done before in the Coast Guard. No student has ever produced a movie with the Coast Guard before. I'm one of the youngest people to ever air on, for instance, PBS. And um, it's just it's just groundbreaking what we've done. And, I mean, we're telling this untold story. So it's just been a big learning experience for all of us. I mean, even with post-production, there are some things we didn't know, but that didn't stop us. We just mm -hmm. went out, Googled it, and learned it until we understood it fully. And I think that's what makes our team special, is that nothing was ever going to stop us because we had the passion for it. Well, I thank you immensely yes, for, thank not, you for, this. for not stopping because this is this is mm -hmm. a documentary that was needed, much needed, and I know it's going to keep airing on KCT on PBS on Link, and uh, I hope when you do your next project, you will come back and join me and join us again here on Behind the Lens, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you so much, Caitlin, and you have a good, safe rest of the trip to LA. I will. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thanks. And we'll be right back after this because Jordan's got to change the battery in a camera. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. Welcome back to the second half of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark DeBlore. You can find me all over, print, online, wherever. And joining me as my cinematic co-pilot today, I'm so excited, is my good friend Byron Bean. Hello. In from New York. Yes. Just for us, but we're not going <laughs> to. We won't go there. But now we have joining us the wonderful Maura Stevens. <laughs> hey, Maura. Hi, can you hear me? Oh, we can hear you yes. great. Hi, Maura. Fine. Oh, good. And, you know, this this is, you know, this is one of those, you know, all things come together in the circle of life moments, having Byron here with me today, because was it last night that you did the, the Femme Fatale uh, screening Q&A with Kim Spurlock moderating? Or is that tonight? Yes, yes, that was yesterday. Well, and Byron is one of the producers on Kim's web series, Living, Living the, the Dream. Dream. Yeah. Oh, how great. I know. It was such a full circle. Yeah, we, were, we were talking about trying to find time to um, do a formal interview with her. Yeah. No, she's great. I, I, just, I just thought it was I thought it was funny because we, we were on the show, I, can't, I think about a month ago. Yeah, roughly. A few weeks ago. And then Debbie told me that you were going to be on the show today. And after doing my research and hearing you were with the Femme Fatales in New York, it was just like one of those exciting <laughs> moments where I was like, oh, wow, this is all coming together. It's like this crazy. <laughs> no, that's great. Weaving. I love Kim. I yeah. You know, and of course, and Kim can tell you I'm very gentle and very nice. <laughs> you know, we're not, we aren't mean, 
But this is this is quite an interesting zipper. Yes. Is a really interesting film, and I have to say right off the bat, I mean, it struck me as very the uh, casting of Patrick Wilson struck me with great irony, having seen him five years ago in the the dark comedy Barry Monday, where instead of a politician on I the rise, I love Barry Monday. Yes. Yes. Instead of being a politician on the rise, um, with as a sex addict, um. He played a poor sap of a guy who lost his balls, literally and figuratively. So the the humor in the casting, I just thought, was just, you know, inside baseball fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's so brave as an actor, which is one of the things that um, really drew me to him as to play this character. And, I mean, he continued to go past boundaries even he had on on zipper mm-hmm. and you need someone and in he, this he always joked about oh he's like oh mora another first another first for me <laughs> how many sex scenes did patrick have in this film <laughs> but then yeah and then to have richard dreyfus um in grooming him there's a lot of the way he talks about him even though he's a politico is in very sexual terms, and he talks about his balls a lot. <laughs> and you need someone in in that Patrick Wilson character that can handle that intensity of uh, this character. I, I I assume. I mean, this is you know, this isn't something to shake a stick at. This character. This is uh, has to have some gravitas in a way. Yes, and but I also wanted that element of um, still have some element of surprise where. Yeah. Patrick in real life is such a nice person, mm-hmm. and I think that also comes across. You know, he's smart, and he's a really good husband, and really good father, and and, and a he, genuinely nice, good person, um, and yet is also willing to go to these really dark places. Yeah. Um, so I wanted that that because there's there's many many different stripes of political sex scandal out there, and there's somewhere. You you always knew that that was part of who they were, and then there's others where you have no idea. It really does come as a surprise, <laughs> even his wife, and you know, he plays the wife in a very strong, smart way. Who who I wanted to make it believable that she really didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Now, what so is... Patrick, Patrick casting of Patrick was important to that. So now, what is your fascination? Because you have said you are fascinated by political sex scandals. What what is the fascination? That gave rise to Zipper. Well, particularly um, how men and women view the scandals differently, and in, and talking to people, how you know they're talking about a public figure's life, somebody they don't know, but everyone has such a personal gut reaction to it, as if it happened to them. You know, how could he? Or you know, oh, I understand him. Or they, they have they take a very personal approach without really understanding what could have been going through his head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to look at that, but through the lens of curiosity and empathy and trying to understand where it might have all began for him um, with with a character like Sam, who's fictional, but you know has little seeds of a lot of different politicians, um, who is somebody who is well-educated, should know better, and also has a great life at home, and yet still goes down this path. So looking at it as an origin story, but sort of the beginning of the of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you've got some, your production values are extremely high, and I have to compliment you on bringing in Antonio uh, as your cinematographer. 
just oh yes, the cinematography is just beautiful. It's rich. It's saturated. It's got polish. You feel that the high gloss element of politics in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was great to work with Antonio Gavache, who had had worked with Patrick on Little Children. Mm-hmm. It was our first time working together, and the the colors of the movie are all. Um, I was very inspired by um, a series of Lucian Freud paintings, mm. his nude portraits. Um, I saw a retrospective of his of his work in London, and walking through the rooms was felt like these are the colors of the movie. So it, it very much influenced the cinematography and all the costume design and production design as well. We were all pulling from a very specific palette that I had mm-hmm. in mind. Now, when when you go are in pre-production to design a film like Zipper, because of the of the thematic elements involved and then the visuals that you want to create, when you sit down with Antonio, what are your, the considerations that you have when designing your lighting, your lensing, and working with him to iron all that out so that the visual tells a story that is juxtapositioned either in tandem or dichotomously with the story itself? Mm. Well, every every um, choice started from a place of trying to push all the, all the limits of, of the subjectivity, of trying to make it feel as much as possible like we were inside Sam's skin. So from camera, the sound design, the music, it was all trying to you know, coming at it as a woman wanting to get inside. All the scenes are either from Patrick Wilson, Sam Ellis's head, or inside Lena Headey's head. Mm-hmm. And so everything was started from a place of that, of looking at other films that I felt like had captured that sense of the subjective point of view and inside, you know. So the was part of the reason I was so obsessed with soft focus, uh, shallow depth of field, is um, I am a very nearsighted person. So when I don't have my glasses on, the things I can see are really only a foot away. Mm-hmm. But then I also have, in those moments, there's little details that you don't notice when you're just kind of moving through your day. Um, so I wanted to try to heighten little sensory details um, which are often very sexualized, too, the sensory, the little mohair, you know, sweaters mm-hmm. or uh, somebody's sweat or, you know, little tiny Sam's breathing. It all kind of started from there. Hmm. Well, and there's a lot... And then also needing a lot of... Um, wanting it to also, at the end, knowing that I wanted to cut it together like a thriller so that I knew going into it that I needed a lot of pieces. Um, so it was, I was pushing for Antonio pretty hard every day to get all the shots that I wanted. Well, what, um, I, what I found really interesting is with the numerous sexual partners and the very tastefully and beautifully lensed sex scenes, you really varied up the depth of field you varied up the style the stylization of the scenes was that important to you to have that variety um you mean with the sex scenes or yeah. in general 
especially with the sex scenes, because they so often a director will let them become so monotonous. But you, yours were so tastefully designed and so stylized. Oh, yeah. It was, well, it all each one came from a place of of character, and and as an audience member, um, I never wanted it to be the the sort of factual sex scene, mm-hmm. which is to say these two people are having sex and then we cut away. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just it's just a fact that they had sex that's shown on camera or a really gratuitous you know I didn't want it to be like pornography either um, so everything was coming from a, a character point of view and uh, and it's, there's no body doubles in the movie it's all actor you know all the actors going to places that was that hard for you to direct before, these actors in um, those scenes and just being really raw and emotional in the moment you know like Penelope Mitchell is the girl in the car. I'd never done anything remotely like that. Um, and nor had Patrick. Patrick has talked about that scene as, you know, one of the hardest scenes he's ever shot, but also one of the things he's most proud of. Was that hard for you to direct those scenes specifically, especially with Patrick Wilson and Lena, he- Lena Headey and, you know, <laughs> what's a, it's such a great cast. I mean, that's got to be kind of a little intimidating. It was wonderful. I, was, I feel so blessed for the cast and and thankful to also the producers for that was um, one thing I just couldn't for each one of those roles there was only one actor who could have played in and it created a lot of production puzzles mm-hmm. <laughs> puzzles mm-hmm. um, figuring out how to get everyone down there and the very short shoot that we had in Louisiana um, but so grateful and all of them were so amazingly collaborative and wonderful to work with. Uh, it's uh, interesting, too. It's worth all the struggle to get there every, every day. Yeah. The set, and there's just such amazing actors to work with. Oh, yeah. I can imagine being on that set with such incredible actors. Um, what's interesting to me, too, is the poignancy of this. I was talking to Debbie about this earlier with the the sexualized political scandal in this, but also the the Ashley Madison sex sex scandal too that's happened recently. It's almost like yes. the release I of feel this like film. The nation's zipper scandal. What's that? It's the nation's zipper scandal. Right, it is the nation's <laughs> exactly. It's the nation's zipper scandal, and it was so funny to me how this film is like coinciding just on the heels of that too. So it's like that energy that's in the air with people sort of wanting to see more of this out of some sort of whatever it is that need that desire to like see scandal or whatever that is inside of this. Yes. The voyeuristic nature. Along the the course of making it, there was one different political sex scandal practically every month. But the Ashley Madison one is very interesting because it, it strikes that much closer to home Mm -hmm. and it's real. And at the core of the movie about how, you know, we can judge these people, but maybe the person sitting next to you or maybe you yourself have some secret that that people don't know about until something like you know until something like this where a whole bunch of people get caught all at the same time right um somebody actually tweeted to patrick uh were you caught up in this to sam ellis about about the ashley madison hack and and patrick tweeted back only as as bob fisher which is his fake name Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's brilliant. Were you were you on this list? Only a Yes. Um, 
but yeah, no, it's very serious. I have, I had some friends in LA who were, as a joke, a couple of friends who were, as a joke with a bottle of wine, looking up friends on the list. Oh no. They actually came across a mutual friend. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I would be afraid of somebody Um, that I would see. I'd be like, no, I don't want to see them on this list. (laughs) I know, using their real emails. Yeah, exactly. Or even if there's a safe name, but it's the name of somebody that you know. uh, uh, Yeah. Nope. Well, Bob Fisher came from, it was a, in the longer cut of the movie, there was a character played by Ryan Batt, who's wonderful, who was um, Sam Ellis's arch nemesis, who was Mm -hmm. the defense attorney who was always up against in cases. Mm -hmm. So he named his enemy his his, um, fake name. (laughs) Hilarious. So what's next for you, Maura? You know, after now that Zipper is out, it's on VOD, it's in theaters. What's next? Well, I'm working on a couple of new projects, um, which I'm very excited about, and one just finishing a rewrite on. We're about to go out to cast. Um, I'm sort of so superstitious. I don't like to talk about. Okay, them then, until then don't. Then don't. Up and running, but but I do have a. I mean, there there is a a social, a very socially relevant issue at the center of it too and a great two great characters so you like these socially relevant issues don't you yeah well i mean it it takes so long to get a movie made um it does two things i need to have and in reading a lot of new scripts now i realize that it starts from a place of character Mm -hmm. but there has to be some really interesting psychology to me of what you know, how could that character have done X and to try to work backwards so that there's something I know I can work at with, with the actor. And then, but then also if there's some political, social, historical, bigger landscape to explore as well, I, I love all the research and stuff mm-hmm. that comes with that. So well, I like and to dig, dig deep into a, how it really is. Well, and heading into a political season, uh, I'm sure it will be filled with great possibilities for future films for you oh thank you uh, yeah so maura thank you so so yeah, much thank for you. joining us and i hope when you finish your next project you will come back again yes i love that wonderful thanks so much maura thank you thank you bye so we've gone from saving lives to political political scandals, sex scandals, destroying lives. Yeah, and <laughs> saving lives, destroying lives. We are just we just cover the globe, the globe here. Yeah, but you know now we have we have some time. We can go back to hear more about Simeon Rice and Unsullied because I just. I just think Simeon is just fabulous. It's fast. It's a fascinating story, and I, I want to hear more about this, how he got into this film. Well, you know, we're not going to hear more of specifically that, but what you are going to hear about is what he learned about himself Yeah. in the process of making this film. Because you go from the gridiron, being in front of the camera, in front of the public on the gridiron, to going behind the lens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I see what you did there. You see what I did there. <laughs> You're just too smart for my <laughs> own good. <laughs> but so I had a chance to ask Simeon about what he did learn about himself in the process of making the film. What did you learn about yourself in the process of making this film? Because mm-hmm. granted, there's a lot of filmmaking that is also a lot like mm-hmm. team sport of football. It's very right. collaborative. Mm-hmm. 
then there's a coach, and now you had to be the coach. Mm -hmm. But what did you learn about yourself? That's a good point. This is that's a really good point. That's a great question. And uh, it's like right now I'm peeling back a layer in your question that you just made me think of and be thoughtful about. It's the fact that I realized that experience make me grow. it made me grow. It made me grow as a man in, in such of a way where I had to pull something out that I didn't even know that was in me. Prior to shooting this film, prior to going into production, pre-production, I was so nervous. I was like, I got to work with actors. I can't. It was like the thing under the bed. It's the thing in the closet. It's the unknown thing that I had. To, it's the fear of, the, of what's that I've created in my mind that was jaded me from the experience. And when I got on the set, it all worked. And it was like leadership. A director's leadership. It's not about demonstrative and this is what, because a lot of the script must, I'll tell them, I'll tell the actors, like, the, the script is the bones. This is the framework in which I want you to work off of. But I'm like, let's take this script to the next level. If you think of something, if you, if I come up with, every day I was coming up with something new with them. And they were like, I'm like, yeah, scratch that out, do this. Because you all heighten the stakes. Mm. It was what it was. It was good. It was okay. But now it just took it off to a, uh, an atmosphere that I didn't even think about. So let's keep it going. Let's let this, this film, this body, this body of work continue to grow, to excel. It'll make opportunity for itself. But you all right now, let's create something than the vision that I had has exponentially grew in. Mm -hmm. And it's backed by the substance. You know, this is the bones, you all put the meat on the bones. Now, this is just something that I epically couldn't even imagine doing. Yeah, but, and it, you know, the way he breaks it down yeah. and looks at it, you know he learned that discipline from football. Right, and he's transferring over to this creative space, which I love. Yeah. yeah. Anybody that can do that and who goes through the necessary steps to do it, mm -hmm. I mean, I see a bright future for Simeon as a filmmaker. It, well, especially if he's identifying the director already as the leader on set. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you you get it. This guy gets it. Well, and you and I have both worked on productions in a producing capacity mm -hmm. where the director is less than desired. Mm -hmm. I'm being kind. <laughs> I know. I'm trying not to expand on that. So I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm being, I'm being kind. But you know, another important part, and and I didn't pull this clip for today, but it's the environment of shooting in the Clearwater Tampa area and the Everglade area and the wooded areas there, because every piece of the environment. Yeah. And playing for the Buccaneers for so long, he knows the the region well, so every piece of the environment becomes part of the film. The brambles, uh, the woods that Marie Gray's character, Reagan, is running through, that's key and important. There's a rose tree deep in the woods that just has some blo red blossoms, ro rose blossoms on it. Mm. They look like rose blossoms. That becomes part of it. There's a cliff, Hangman's Cliff, that's very instrumental because it involves jumping off the cliff. It's written into the script and into waters that are filled with with alligators and crocodiles now did he did you when you interviewed him did he say that these were uh these were um locations that he meant to put in there he, for specific scenes or no wow he reworked things as he found once he found 
these specific areas, oh, the environment. So that, that's great. And he, when he's talking about making changes every day on set, uh huh, that's what it was. These are the kind of changes, and then shooting night for night, that's critical. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. critical, especially since they were using the natural moonlight and they weren't lighting the woods with artificial light. So you had the cinematographer uh, Scott Winnick, who was also handling you know camera. And he's running and following Murray Gray in the dark mm -mm. over, you know, tree stumps and, and bramble and, you know, roots and mud. So, you know, the environment is very important. But my favorite part of the environment in this film are the mosquitoes. Oh, my God. So, and Murray Gray, I talked to Murray also. Uh, and that interview, uh, I'll have that up on my website later on this week. But the mosquitoes, and she said it helped fuel her performance because it just made her that much more uncomfortable and that right. much worse in this claustrophobic, in this, you know, chase. Yeah, I feel like they're like super mosquitoes in, in Florida. Also. I, I think like, they are. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the ones in Georgia are super, are super mosquitoes. Right. Jersey Shore has had their, their <laughs> own over the years. Of course, when I was much younger, they seemed like super mosquitoes, as my grandmother would coat me with off. But I had, and I had to bring that up to Simeon. It's like, okay, the mosquitoes, the bugs. What is the budget for the bug spray on a film like this? <laughs> oh, my God. The, the, the mosquitoes play a big element as to the film. It, all the unnervousness, all the unrest, all the... It's for everybody. I'm sitting here like, oh my God, why are we shooting this at night out here in the humidity when it's 85 degrees out and there's mosquitoes everywhere? <sighs> you had to be focused. And the budget was, it was a, we had a balloon budget for mosquito repellent. I was going to say. All kinds, because after a couple of days, the mosquitoes get used to that. You got to keep changing it up. <laughs> it's crazy. Then people got innovative, like, what you need to do is you got to take the fabric softener and you gotta put it under you you know everybody got these grandma ways of doing things i'm like oh my god this ain't working i got dry sheets all over me you know what i mean but you know we coped and we dealt with it and deal with it he did and only on behind the lens will you hear anybody talk about using dryer sheets oh, as mosquito repellent and our time is we're we're out of time again already 15 seconds Yes. We're there. I am so thrilled to have you here. You will come back again, won't you? I will come back again. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Oh, this was fantastic. Yeah. This was so much fun. I know. I know. I loved it. <laughs> and so that's it. And we'll be back next week. Uh, Joshua Rush will probably be here next week. We'll have some great stuff on Breakpoint. And mark your calendars on the 14th. Diamond Dallas Page. Yes. <laughs>